Broadcasting to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Sydney, London, and around the world, this is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live, 101.3 KPCG, and online we're at kpcg.fm. Coming up on this Monday edition, look at some headlines. A lot of interesting things happened over the weekend. Take a look at uh, those stories for you. Also, uh, look at what's going on with the Trumpet Daily Radio Show and at thetrumpet.com today. Interesting historical note, and also looking at the uh, King of the North as it's revealed in Daniel, History and Prophecy of the Middle East booklet, really interesting section to look at today. That and more, this edition of Trumpet Radio Live. This is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live, 101.3 KPCG. We're online at kpcg.fm. We have a live link at thetrumpet.com as well. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at kpcgfm. Any emails you'd like to send, send those to comments at kpcg.fm. Dwight Falk and uh, Grant Turgeon with you here today on a Monday. And a little bit of a foggy start for our Monday today. It was... uh, not a lot of visibility out there. It feels like uh, I don't know the uh, so- somewhere else, so somewhere in uh, Ireland or Scotland or somewhere, or it's all foggy. <laughs> I was literally just thinking that exact thing while you were saying that. We didn't even discuss this beforehand. That's just how we think alike, I guess. Uh, how many foggy places are there? <laughs> those, are, <laughs> those are the foggy places, I guess. So uh, interesting uh, uh, week ahead, weather-wise for us in this area. Pretty warm, uh, and then I guess it gets cold towards the weekend. So. Uh, we're kind of up and down. I think uh, I think it's affecting people. You know, you hear a lot of coughing, a lot of sneezing. I've had a little of that myself. And uh, uh, well, it's that time of the year. But then also just the temperatures jumping around. I don't know why that is, but it seems like when the temperatures go up and down, uh, for some reason we uh, get sick. Yeah, and I think in Oklahoma we seem to have the most temperature swings statistically of any state in the entire country. So there's there's that as well. We we get that more than anyone else. Yeah, we uh we we go up and down. So it's it's interesting. No snow yet this year, but everyone's uh I don't know, I wouldn't mind some a little bit, but uh, some areas of the country have had some of course, but we haven't had any. Uh some headlines to take a look at today. Yesterday the big news and it's affecting things today as well was this uh, fire. The underground fire caused complete power outage Sunday afternoon at Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport, resulting in thousands of canceled flights at the world's busiest terminal and affecting travelers worldwide. Uh, major, major uh, problem there, canceling all the flights. It is the world's busiest terminal, and uh, you know how it is. If your flight's delayed even a little bit, it's a frustration, and it sets your day back somewhat. And uh, to just flat-out cancel the flights, and a lot of them, of course, then it caused delays and still more delays today. So uh, really, uh, I think about six hours, people were in the dark in some cases or stuck on their planes. Uh, So everybody that's traveled knows that that would be a horribly frustrating and somewhat frightening situation. Yeah, and that's without a doubt the most, uh, I guess, I guess the the worst place that something like that could possibly happen. Because, like you said, it is affecting more flights than any place in the entire world. I remember how surprised I was when we covered that a while ago on the show that 
Atlanta's the world's busiest airport, but I mean that's that's a pretty impressive achievement. And I'm sure that probably helps their economy a lot. But then on the other hand, if the flights are getting canceled, you're probably getting hurt there as well. They did a report last night on uh, I think it was uh, ABC's nightly news about it, and uh, they had they had a local reporter. They didn't have him there in Atlanta. He was in Dallas. So uh, <laughs> he was at the Dallas airport. I huh. guess they just said, hey, who can get to an airport? And that guy could. So he was at the Dallas airport reporting on the story from Atlanta. And the tie-in was that, well, some flights are delayed at Dallas too, which is fair enough. But then he was in front of a ticket counter and he was trying to kind of drum it up a little bit. And he said, oh, look at the lines, you know, behind me here. And, and I was looking, I was like, that looks like every every uh, line I've ever seen at the airport. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's people... They're in line. I mean, that's what happened. So he was trying to dramatize it a little bit. It was dramatic, but it just wasn't that dramatic at Dallas, <laughs> the Fort Worth <laughs> Airport. Uh, but what's interesting about this, and, and I had this thought when it was happening, and probably a lot of people did, is if if uh, you know terrorists are watching, which I'm sure they are, uh, it shows you how quickly you can cripple something. Uh, the Daily Beast has a write-up. It says, Atlanta airport blackout sends message to terrorists. America is unprepared in case they were to do something to uh, shut down an airport or communication or something like that. Yeah, that's a really alarming part of this story. And uh, the, probably they couldn't even have a reporter in that Atlanta airport if it's in the dark there. <laughs> they probably couldn't send anyone there short notice either. Uh, but, but yeah, obviously the most important part of the story is what what terrorists could learn from something like that. If all it takes is like a fire to shut down an entire airport, then you have lots of extra people in the airport that wouldn't have been there otherwise. So if you actually attack the terminal, you would be hitting a lot more people. Um, it just seems like it would be a pretty easy time to maybe maybe sabotage some of the planes while they're all grounded. Uh, so a lot of potential disasters there. The thing that about the Atlanta deal that really kind of alarmed uh, people and this writer from the Daily Beast is that it was a single point failure, wow. which means it's just one spot that the fire broke out in and it shut everything down. It makes the, it made the world's busiest airport go dark for hours, trap thousands of passengers. It's what phase one of an attack could look like. So there's a lot that's been written over the years in the Trumpet.com about if you take down the internet, if you take down something that has a single point failure capability or possibility, uh, what do you do? And they could they, that happened at the airport. It was an accident, apparently, or a fire, I guess. But it was a single point. It was one fire, and it took down the entire airport. Yeah, and so far as we know, it was an accident. But there are also people who do things like that on purpose. And now, there now people know how easy it is to shut something down or to cause chaos. Um, there are definitely people who would try to take advantage of that. They, they write up here in this uh, Daily Beast article, it says, forget about the harm done to uh, the holiday travel. It's much more serious than that. There has never been a single point failure of this magnitude in any major airport in the U.S. All the essential systems seem to have lacked backup or redundancy. So in other words, there was uh, if, if one system went down, there was nothing behind it. So they sat there. Normally around 275,000 passengers, equal to the population of a small city, pass through Atlanta's airport every day. From the moment when this disaster hit, that flow continued without restraint, with the terminals quickly becoming jammed. As you can imagine, people, if they're not flowing through, they just jam up. Nobody in the airport management stepped up to stop that happening. They said, why could a failure at one power source automatically knock out the supply to a whole airport? 
Why were there no backup systems to keep the essential services at the airport functioning? Why were there no emergency generators ready to cut in as they are, for example, at hospitals? Why was there no power for the most basic systems, not even lighting for the terminals? They were in the dark. Um, And so uh, even at the security checkpoints, it was all in the dark. The Atlanta chaos is yet another red flag, they say, indicating that our airports are far from ready to deal with a terrorist threat. And then you pair that type of a problem with the issues that the Transportation Security Administration has had, the TSA, uh, where it's been shown that in the past it used to be about 90% or more of weapons could get through the screenings. I think they've improved that to where only 75% or so can get through now, so I guess that's an accomplishment. But but still, why are we going through those types of lines and having to take our belts and our shoes off and, and put our bags through a screen if it's likely not to uh, turn up any potential weapons anyway? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, depending on what airport you go through, it seems like it's a little different, you know, what the security is. I've been through multiple airports on, you know, one single trip, and some airports said, no, we need you to take your laptop out. Others didn't care. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I didn't, I could never figure out why it mattered at one and not the other. But, uh, but yeah, it is really uh, startling to think about the fact that, that the airports in the U.S., and I think we all know this from traveling, uh, they're pretty out of date. Um, they, uh, the technology isn't uh, maybe keeping up the way that it should in some cases. And they do a remarkable job of getting people around, of course, but how susceptible are they to major problems? And even I was just thinking about society in general. Everything kind of flows. But you can knock out one area of society, one thing, you know, uh, some sort of distribution, whether it be of food or it be of something else, and how quickly do you have chaos? I mean, we saw just a tiny, tiny look at that in Atlanta. They got the power back up, but what if you don't? What if a six hours becomes six days? What do the people do? Where do they go? They just leave and roam around, I guess. But uh, it just shows you how vulnerable I think we are uh, in society. Yeah, and a lot of people, a lot of travelers probably wouldn't have the money to stop over in a city and pay for that for several days. Uh, there are just a lot of issues like that where uh, you can't, you literally can't afford uh, to be having delays like that. Um, and then that's just talking about it from a convenience standpoint, not even from a security standpoint. Uh, any any potential bad actor could take advantage of these types of things pretty easily. That's what's so alarming about it. And even just the fact that having a backup plan in place is called redundancy. It just kind of shows that uh, maybe the mindset about those types of systems isn't right, <laughs> that, that we think it's redundant to have a backup because we don't ever think that the first system will go down at all. Yeah, they they had a crazy, crazy busy Sunday there. And, of course, because of the Atlanta airport shut down, it's going to have effects throughout You know, some people's traveling for the next few days. The uh, fires in California were going on Sunday as well from the L.A. Times. As of Sunday evening, the third largest wildfire in modern California history, was at 270,000 acres and 45% contained. Fueled by Santa Ana winds with gusts topping 70 miles per hour early Sunday in some valley and mountain areas, the blaze burned a massive swath from Santa Barbara to Ventura. By late Sunday, winds had dropped down to 3 to 5 miles per hour, which was really good. But they're supposed to uh, pick back up on Wednesday again, so now's the time they got to try to put that fire out. That's just amazing how it continues like that it's hard to even picture how a fire could just be burning for days and weeks at a time and it's just so difficult to contain just because of 
the winds and how pre- unpredictable it is, like the speed of them, the direction of them, uh, possibly fires starting from embers in any place if the wind just sparks them up. And so all of a sudden you could just have fires in different locations that you weren't even expecting. Uh, there are so many potential problems with that. And then just, just the amount of possible damage too. I mean, if it's all over the state and it's running for days and weeks at a time, that's going to start hitting some really important locations and taking out businesses and homes and inconveniencing or hurting a lot of people. Yeah, the uh, uh, firefighters, I think, have done obviously a really, really good job there, but uh, it is a, quite a battle. And uh, one of the firefighters said it was the worst fire that he has seen in 35 years. So, and it's, again, it's the third largest in modern California history. So, uh, and it's not over yet. I mean, it is, like it, like they say here, it is somewhat contained, but still still 55% uncontained. And I even saw that Oprah's house was in danger. Oh, no. So, <coughs> But I think she was, I don't know what happened there. I just saw the headline. I guess that's when famous people's houses are in danger, then it makes the news. Yeah, I mean, I think that that does stand out just because typically you would expect for the rich and the famous to be more insulated from things like this. She probably does have about 10 other homes where she could move at least if one of one of them gets destroyed. Yep. Uh, but still, I mean, that, that does show you that natural disasters so-called uh, do affect everybody it's, it's not something where if you have a certain amount of money or a certain type of job you can escape from them yeah they probably have a few other houses in case it happens but it's a bad situation out there and it'd be nice if they could get them under control but uh, we'll see what happens as a week progresses and it would be helpful too if they had a winter freeze i mean most places at least get some snow or some ice or a lot of rain around this time of year california doesn't seem to get that too much unless you're talking about uh the very northern part of the state uh if it is perfect weather year-round but at the same time it does become more susceptible to fires and things like that yeah they're gonna have to uh uh see if they can knock these out before those winds pick back up and uh you know like you said they could use some rain there's uh, of course we've mentioned this before but there's some really good write-ups thetrumpet.com about california and and some of the uh curses they're experiencing and i don't think there's any way to <laughs> say this is a blessing that's for sure so uh it's good to look at some of the uh, some of those write-ups about that here's a interesting story from bloomberg divorce is making american families 66 percent bigger i don't think they mean fatter but <laughs> maybe that too uh, more people in the families. American sprawling step families can make it harder to stay close, they said. Almost a third of U.S. households headed by adults under age 55 have at least one step parent, according to a recent analysis of survey data by the University of Massachusetts. Uh, the, uh, the study found that looking at couples over age 55 who have adult children, 33% have a stepchild. So uh, it's very common for people to have these, uh, what do they call them, blended families, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, some cases it might be a good thing. In other cases, maybe not as good. Um, It definitely makes it harder to to make the money spread around. That's one of the problems. Very true. This story is talking about divorce. There are some times where uh, maybe a spouse dies and then remarries. And that, that at least is a bit more understandable. But it's not too surprising now that families don't seem as close as they once were. If you have all these um, stepkids or, you know, a second or third spouse or whatever it might be, uh, you're not going to be as close to all of these people because you haven't spent your whole life with them like you would an original spouse or your original children. Right. And they're obviously the parent of the 
kid, one of the parents is somebody that's <laughs> probably not in favor within that family, so it makes it awkward with the children. Yeah, that seems to happen a lot too. The 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 children are very skeptical of their new step parent. It it just seems like a pretty easy path to division that could quite easily be avoided simply by making sure that our marriages are carefully considered before we get into them and then the effort is put in after we commit like that to make sure that they stay strong and and keep going. It says the rise in divorce and remarriage is driving this growth in family size. Over the past two decades, the divorce rate has doubled for older Americans. Almost 30% of people over 50 had been married more than once, according to a recent study by uh, scholars at Bowling Green State University. About 40% of older Americans with children are in step families, according to the survey data. They said it's not uncommon for individuals to feel like they have to choose how to spread resources across their biological and step relatives. Yeah, that gets tricky. It gets <laughs> messy. The whole situation gets messy because of the divorce and the remarriage. And think about it. We're a week away from Christmas where we've already seen that causes quite a lot of debt here in America. Uh, where so much so that people aren't even done paying off last year's Christmas by the time this, this year's comes around. What if you have 66% larger family that you have to try to give gifts to? I mean, even just financially, it just shows you that uh, it's not the best idea to um, quit on your family and, and divorce whenever things get tough. That um, Do you think the trend of like waiting until your mid-30s or your 40s to get married is is going to help a problem like this where obviously these people have in most every case been pretty promiscuous before even getting into their marriage and so if you've if you've had a dozen or more partners by the time you even get married how strong is your marriage actually going to be and then it's so much easier to get divorced and then move on from there at any time it gets convenient inconvenient they always say that the number one cause of financial problems for people is divorce mm. I mean, no matter what ups and downs you might have in life, lost job or, you know, something or an emergency, usually people can kind of ride that tide a little bit. But when it comes to divorce, that's the biggest, you know, you're splitting, you're splitting your stuff in half at least. And uh, that's a big cause for financial problems. And then you add that on to somebody getting divorced and getting married again, and then you start mixing the kids. Now you've got a family that's 66% bigger on average. And you've already had the financial problem with the divorce, and now you're trying to make this work. Uh, and I don't, I don't know. I don't know how the courts decide all that. But you know, if there's if people get divorced and they get remarried, and then there's a the child support, you know, they're each paying other families to support kids, and the kids are moving around, and life is much, much simpler uh, if you can just, you know, get married once and stay that way. Uh, I mean, if a spouse dies, that's one thing, but I mean, the divorce and the remarriage. And like they said here, a lot of the older adults are getting divorced too. It's, you, you see that in the news sometimes where uh, somebody that's like, you know, 70 gets divorced. They were married for 45 years. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, why don't you just stick it out? It's almost <laughs> over with, right? <laughs> that's true. But uh, <laughs> for some reason, I don't know. It's just, it's so easy. It's no fault now. So people, I guess, just feel like, hey, why not? And it is encouraged in society now if... If you want to be happy, you have to follow your heart, whatever that might mean. Uh, you can just get divorced. That's a way to move on. A marriage is is considered now to be a relationship of convenience. And so if it 
ceases to become that, that is apparently grounds for people to get divorced. It's not seen as the sacred institution that God intended for it to be. So again, uh, the fruits show even just financially how bad divorce is, but we have to even go back further than that to the root causes, which are just the fact that marriages are not treated as uh, a sacred institution like they should be. People are not deeply considering it before getting into it. They're not making sure that they're compatible. They're not going through uh, in-depth counseling to make sure that it would work long term. They're not uh, really promising to commit to it until death do they part. And because of that, it just becomes a lot easier to get divorced if you don't know how important marriage really is. It kind of seems almost like it's become dating. Yeah. Like what dating used to be, with the exception, I guess, of... You can the, break it off yeah, anytime. Yeah. Exactly. Like, it's like a serious dating situation, <laughs> in, in a way. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's sad to see, too, they don't cover it in this article, but you do see a lot of times uh, abuse, sadly, of children or, or things like that. And oftentimes, when you look at it, not always, but a lot of times it's not. There's a, an interesting mix of people there. It may not be the actual parent or the actual... So that's always a very, very sad thing to see. Uh, I've actually heard of that from a lot of people I've been around in public school and things like that. Just so many of them got abused by a step-parent. That just seems like an extremely commonplace uh, problem that these families get into. And then that's not even to mention like the the sexual perversions that you can get into if you have all these people who are not blood relatives then living in the same home. Yeah, sadly it those things do pop up in the headlines, but uh, the uh, divorce is making American families 66% bigger. Uh, not enough paycheck to go around a lot of times. There's a really excellent write-up at thetrumpet.com on uh, why marriage, soon obsolete question, and uh, that's written years ago by Herbert W. Armstrong, and uh, really gets uh, down to the looking at the marriage institution. You know, Where did it come from? Why do we have it? And, uh, it, you know, he, he said at that time years ago, would it ever be obsolete? And I think people probably thought, oh, come on, you know, but we're to that point where it almost is or it's being it's being so, you know, expanded by definition to mean any sort of coupling up of any humans and or species that uh, <laughs> it's lost. It's, it's lost its meaning in a lot of ways. Yeah. And of course, marriage, as defined by the Bible, is supposed to be an institution where you would be willing to give give your life for your spouse. It's not about um, it being something that is best for you. Of course, you wouldn't want to get into a marriage if it's going to make your life worse in any way. But still, the focus has to always be on helping the other person, serving the other person, making the other person's life better. And if both sides in that pairing have that same goal, a, a marriage would never end in divorce. It wouldn't ever have to lead to all that heartbreak and the scars that take decades to heal if they ever do. And of course the family's getting big, bigger and all the financial issues. Uh, it's just so easy to see that it's all coming from not abiding by the biblical definition of marriage. You know, there's, there's that expression, the, uh, what a tangled web we weave. We yeah. practice to deceive. <laughs> but whenever you get people get into something where it's you know not by God's law, according to God's law, it just becomes a tangled web, mm-hmm. and, all, and they get your finances and you got all this other stuff to worry about. So uh, anyway, interesting right up there. One more uh, headline that uh, <laughs> I thought this one kind of caught my attention because I see this in my uh, neighborhood, even though it's a little different, especially around I guess if family members are visiting people. Uh, a lot of people have RVs around here. They have an RV where they'll 
park it in their driveway and somebody from out of town is staying there. Seen a few of those around. Well, some people are living in those. <laughs> Bay. This is from uh, out in California. Bay Area cities face growing crisis as RVs become homes of last resort. Bay Area, Bay Area cities are coming to realize uh, that parking tickets won't solve the problem of finding a place to live. From Oakland to San Jose, officials are struggling to cope with a growing influx of RV dwellers seeking a safe, permanent place for the only homes that they can afford. Some are just priced out of the market. Uh, others just don't have the resources. So people are living in RVs. Where do you park them? They can't, they can't afford to park them on a lot. They don't have a lot or an RV park that they can afford to be in, so they're just parking them on the street. And people are saying, hey, get your RV out of here. <laughs> and uh, so there's a problem there in the Bay Area. That's just another curse of California. And we heard on the Trumpet Daily Radio show recently how in the 60s uh, it was considered the greatest state in the entire country. Now all, all that you think of when you think of California are earthquakes, wildfires, uh, rampant immorality, uh, way too expensive lifestyles where, where people are doing things like this or we've talked about before where uh, someone will set up basically a cardboard box in their living room and charge someone $400 a month to live in that. Right. I mean, what what have we come to when that is what the living situation is like in some of these cities? Yeah, it's uh, it just leads to all kinds of problems. Tom Myers, he's the executive director of Community Services Agency of Mountain View, says we've never seen it like this. <clears throat> the uh, city averages more than three complaints a day about RV communities. They're all kind of uh, communing together, <laughs> communing. It says we have prepared. Uh, we have to be prepared that this will be the new normal for us. It's a crisis. So I don't know. Maybe they just need to build some RV parks, but but people are uh, in some cases they are working, but they just can't afford the two thousand dollar a month rent for an apartment, or uh, you know they're just they're having a hard time getting by. But they're in these RVs and they're just parking them in people's neighborhoods. And you know you'd be frustrated if you went outside and saw a bunch of RVs sitting in your road, totally blocking your view, probably and taking yeah. away taking away some of the privacy of your property. That would be. Uh, an irritating situation for people actually living in homes there who could actually afford it, which it seems like it is getting increasingly rare for anyone to be able to do so. Uh, but if you have an RV, why not just drive that thing to a place that's more affordable? I guess it would be hard to give up some, some of the pleasures of California, but still, there are a lot more affordable places. Yeah, it's a good point. I guess they they're just comfortable with where they are or something. But yeah, I mean, they they kind of they go through a few case studies and. Some of these individuals, you know, they, they it's a tough life because you know you're going to get evicted from your spot. So they, they try to stay there for about two or three days mm -hmm. until they get the knock on the door from the officer telling them, you got to move on, and okay. And then they, they're going to go through the same act again. It'll be three days later at another neighborhood. So these people are just roaming around uh, in these RVs. And, of course, you know, you don't know what's going on in those. I mean, it could be fine, but at the same time, it could be bad situations, you know, and so anyway, California, they're just uh, they're having more and more problems, uh, depending on where you go. Like you said, you know, you get your fires, earthquakes. Uh, people are being priced out of being able to live there, and they're living in RVs, and then there's homeless situations. So uh, really a blessed area in a lot of ways, but just one problem after another. And then there's a homeless problem, the actual homeless that uh, we talked about last week. So, um, boy, you just have to be really careful picking your spot if you're going to live out there. Yeah, and other problems do seem to arise anytime there's uh, a low-income housing block. In this case, it appears to be that the RVs will congregate in the same place, and then 
Uh, who knows what might be going on? I mean, obviously, they're in a desperate situation as it is to have to be living in those. And so some other uh, sins could be taking place. But also, it does seem like this type of issue could breed hostility toward the police. If every couple of days the police are telling them to move, people might get sick of that after a while and they're not maybe they wouldn't respond so well. So so even there, uh, that that just seems like a danger to the police officers. Yeah, bad situation. There are some really nice RVs, though. There are. I've, now, I've actually thought about <laughs> so, <laughs> traveling the country in one of those. Some of the pictures, uh, obviously, these are a little worse for wear. They're a little <laughs> older, but still, there are some you know new ones. It costs much as a house almost, depending on where you live, I guess. But uh, <laughs> there are some neat ones out there. Uh, com today. Make sure you stop and check out uh, the top stories. The top one today is Germans want a European army. They just don't want to pay for it. That's the way we all are. I want an army, but I don't want to have to pay for it. That's by... Uh, <laughs> Kieran Underwood it says, in the end, necessity will force a decision. So Germany is getting a lot more active as far as trying to get uh, a military going within the EU. And uh, not not as many people kind of balking at that as you think they would, considering Germans his, Germany's history. Yeah, and as that article points out, as things get more desperate, they'll also become willing to pay for it because necessity always compels people to actually put their ideas into practice. Right now... They might not necessarily feel like that's what they need to do yet, but pretty soon they're going to, and they're going to have to spend the money on it. That article also points out how the German people have changed their priorities militarily, where they think now that other European states deserve more of their protection or more of their allegiance than America does. That is showing just a deep ingratitude for the way America has pretty much single-handedly protected them since World War II. Yeah, I saw a headline today, too, that... uh President Trump is really pushing for America first when it comes to security and uh, things like that. So you see America becoming more isolationist in a way, and uh, whenever that happens, it's always a good uh, uh, indication that there's going to be trouble globally. We were pretty isolationist before World War II, and and so I mean you can understand why there we we've been we've been spending our blood and and uh, money as it were all over the globe. And you can see why people would want to come back and say, well, let's focus on us. But as you do that, then who rises and takes power in these other parts of the world? So it's sort of an interesting situation. Yeah, every time America has decided to keep to itself, it seems like the the earth is rocked by just these uh, mind-numbing crises. I mean, we barely got into World War One, and we barely got into World War Two. How much, how many lives could have been saved and how many... Uh, how much destruction could have been avoided if America would have just played its part as the world policeman. The problem is, though, we don't have the pride in our power to step up and do what we clearly have the power to do. Right, yep. Won't, uh, and we're not unified as a people either to do much of anything. Uh, the Trumpet Daily Radio Show today with your host, Stephen Flurry. Check that out as well. They talk about this uh, write-up from Politico, the secret backstory of how Obama let... Hezbollah off the hook, and it says there is a uh, ambitious U.S. task force targeting Hezbollah's billion-dollar criminal enterprise uh, ran headlong into the White House's desire for a nuclear deal with Iran. So we're all finding out now what uh, the details, I guess, of what was already known in a lot of ways and was written about at the trumpet.com and talked about on the Kia David, which was this Iran deal was a disaster, and we're going to see that more and more as we go along, and also um, a lot of illegal dealings to get it going in the first place. But, you know, this piece will come out. I'm sure it'll get read a little bit, and I think everyone will just move on. 
Uh, but uh, if you look at really what happened in the Obama administration, uh, I, like the headline says, it is a secret backstory of how Obama let Hezbollah off the hook. Nothing to see here. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be endless side effects to this policy of peace through diplomacy or appeasement. Uh, the way that you appease and get these deals done, it seems to always involve a lot of deception. I uh, remember how when we were trying to finalize that Iranian nuclear deal, Ben Rhodes was writing a fairy tale about how uh, that he basically was changing the timeline of events that led up to the deal and was showing how um, the new Iranian leader was a moderate, apparently, even though he has never really changed his stated goal to wipe out Israel. And and he still believes that America is the great Satan. If that's a moderate, um, what is an extremist anymore? <laughs> so they they clearly were telling the public a different story than what was actually taking place behind the scenes. And of course the $400 billion, was it billion or yeah, I think it was million billion billion. I think it was billion actually that they sent on, on a plane overnight without telling anybody. I mean, the deception just goes on and on the corruption. Uh, now we're seeing it. It might have to do with some other terrorist organizations. The details are just sorted here. It's like a really bad movie plot. Like, if you took the plot to Hollywood, they'd say, well, no one would believe this, you know, <laughs> sending pallets of cash. You know. <laughs> it just seems ridiculous. But uh, that's what was so frustrating about the Obama era, and I think it still is if you look at it. Every People could see what they were doing, and they would just say, oh, never mind. And the media would just say, oh, sounds good. <laughs> and that's why people got so frustrated with it, I think. A lot of people did. Not saying that, um, you know... Uh, the current administration has got all the answers or anything like that. But uh, the fact that the media was so complicit in everything that the Obama administration did, now they're kicking and screaming at everything the Trump administration does. How about just some fair reporting down the line? That would be appreciated. Yeah, very true. Uh, probably $400 million now that I think about it more. But, yeah, it's it's actually pretty impressive to see someone who's able to look you in the face and lie to you and not even flinch, which is what the Obama administration did pretty much in every situation like this where the controversies have only increased since they left office because uh, now that there are no political repercussions, maybe the media is a little bit more willing to bring it forward now that the Democrats won't be as hurt by it, maybe. Um, it, just, it does take a long time, though, to uncover these details. Um, that's the disturbing part about politics there could be all kinds of scandals that take place, but once you finally unearth the details, those who committed the crimes or deceive the people are already out of office. It's already done with. I mean, that's the same thing with uh, some of these issues about um, uh, the the presidential election last year. There were, there were some details that came out about that, that that feminist lawyer Lisa Bloom was trying to pay this woman $750,000 to accuse President Trump of sexual assault two days before the election. How long would it have actually taken to vet that and ascertain whether it were true or false? It, it is difficult, and, and that's why people are able to get away with corruption so much. By the time they have uh, figured out what actually happened, those who did it are already off the scene. They're already on their yacht in the Mediterranean and, and relaxing and enjoying life, they're not, they're not going to get punished for it anymore. Yeah. It's frustrating. It's frustrating when you see like two sets of standards, Yeah, you know, for the common man, you, that would be illegal. But if you're in a certain position in power, do whatever you want. Look at what Hillary Clinton was able to get away with where 
James Comey wrote her exoneration letter before he even interviewed her. I mean, that's just so much has come out recently showing how corrupt the American government is. There are people who are trying to hijack the greatest nation in all of history because they don't think there's any problem lying. They don't think there's any problem in bribery or I don't know, mass murder in some cases. They just they just let it happen as long as it that fits their political affiliation. Yeah, it's terrible. And you see that sort of thinking uh, coming down to, uh, you know, more of the common folk, if you want to say that. There was a story here over the weekend about uh, this uh, college student at uh, I think it was OU that accused one of the football players of of uh, assault. And uh, so that made the big news that he was accused. And then it comes out here a few weeks later that, well, in fact, I'm not exactly sure what actually happened, but they caught her admitting that she was going to put this narrative out there because she thought it would help her career. As she like got out of college, that she'd be able to use that because people really like that story of someone being attacked. Wow. And she got caught saying that, so the charges are all dropped now. She was willing to ruin some guy's life so she could get ahead a little bit. I mean, where, where does that idea come from? Well, it comes from the people at the top. You see it all the time in the, in the politics and such. Our leaders are directly saying that. People on the in the radical left right now are saying if if there are 10 men accused of sexual assault and only two of them actually committed the crime it's better to fire all of them uh than take the time to figure out what actually happened so that is being that is being told as a good strategy so of course people are going to do it it probably changed the alabama senate race uh, those allegations against roy moore from 40 years ago that people just didn't have the time to look into and figure out whether they were true or false at least half of them got proven false but not all of them and and those who heard the original allegations might not have even heard that they were proven false later it's just it just shows how deep the corruption goes where people are just willing to ruin someone's life slander beyond belief just to get their way politically or to gain a gain career advancement, whatever it might be, uh, we don't obviously selfishness is at the root of that. People only care about themselves and don't care about possibly destroying other people's lives. Yeah, I kind of worry about the uh, the boomerang effect of of uh, all these accusations, and some may be true and some aren't. But the problem is, is when they get thrown out there, eventually, I think it reaches a point of saturation to where. Even if somebody has a legitimate case, no one's going to believe them. Yeah. It's the crying wolf thing. To I think at the end of the day, it's actually going to hurt people that are in a position of, say, uh, you know, being taken advantage of by somebody in power or something like that. Because people will just get so tired of hearing it that I don't think it'll matter anymore. Mm-hmm. And so then you've actually, you know, the big cause is actually hurt the, the true victims because it was just politicized. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens. But anyway, uh, lots and lots of... Uh, uh, nefarious dealings, and the one in particular about what happened with uh, the Iran deal uh, there today on the Trump Daily Radio Show. So make sure you listen for that. And I'm sure there'll be more about that as uh, more of the story comes out. Politico's problem in the piece is that it's too long and no one's going to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably <laughs> intentionally so. They're they're left-wing anyway. Got to make it 15 words. <laughs> more than 15 words. If you can't read it in a tweet, no, no one's going to sit down and read that. <laughs> that's that's true how it is now. I mean, even even the extensive report about the Uranium One deal where uh, Hillary Clinton was signing off America's stores of uranium to Russia. Talk about Russian collusion, but it wasn't covered in the media. Mm-hmm. And it, the story hardly gained any attention because probably people might not have the attention span for it. And obviously the media 
doesn't want to expose the Democrats. Yeah, I think if if it's not a story that's reported succinctly and to where people can understand it pretty quickly, they just lose interest. Say, I don't even know what that's about, you know, move on. So um, they probably do that on purpose so that, yeah, they reported it or it got out there, but not not really got buried. Yeah. And in lots and lots of words. <laughs> yeah, even like the Trump-Russia allegations seem to be fitting that pattern where uh, you just talk about it for a whole year. They still haven't found any evidence, but they have come up with hundreds of conspiracy theories about how they might have done something. They draw attention to the crimes that were committed by lying to the FBI about an investigation that shouldn't even be taking place because there's no proof that any collusion happened in the first place. Uh, I just start tuning it out. I start zoning out when it's covered on the news now because it's been it's been talked about for a year and there's been no proof of anything. Right. Yeah, that you could you could catch anybody, I suppose, if you just kept serving them legal papers. Eventually you'd probably do something wrong in that process, even maybe just don't even understand what you're dealing with and <laughs> then they get you on that, you know. So yeah, you, you get caught in that. Uh, today is the uh, 18th of December. Here's one note of something interesting that happened on this day. 1957, the world's first full-scale nuclear power plant begins to generate electricity at the uh, shipping port atomic power station in Pennsylvania. As of April 2017, there are now 30 countries worldwide that are operating 449 nuclear reactors for electricity generating uh, generation, and 60 new plants are under construction in 15 countries. Nuclear power plants provide 11% of the world's electricity production as of the year 2014. So... Uh, they seem to work okay until they don't, <laughs> and then you have a big time problem. Uh, it's interesting when you see how they're made. There's different ways of doing it, and uh, the U.S. is pretty good about the way they make them. Uh, Russia doesn't really care. <laughs> they tend to make them uh, as cheaply as possible, and they'll take the chances. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and and obviously, nuclear energy is effective. We've seen what they can do in the form of a weapon. So if you harness that it's going to be a lot more effective than solar power, which there's been a push for that by some of the environmentalists. Uh, wind power, those things are a lot more unreliable, and they don't they don't produce as much. That's why you would see a lot more reliance on nuclear power. Obviously, the potential for disaster is a lot greater, but it does produce a lot more energy, too. That's always man's uh, uh, big goal, you know, if you can figure out a way to have sustainable energy that's renewable and doesn't have some major, you know, uh, uh, byproduct that pollutes. Well, you you've signed your ticket. You're going to be a you're going to be the richest person in the world, <laughs> or dead. I'm not sure which one. Yeah, and uh, I think coal is a, probably a good source of energy as well. Uh, I remember when Hillary Clinton literally said, "We're going to put a whole lot of coal miners out of business." Isn't that right, Tim? <laughs> Talking to her vice presidential candidate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, obviously uh, there are people who care a lot about environmental issues but those are made into a lot bigger issue than they actually are what you have to focus on uh, primarily is whether the energy sources actually get you anything it's always a a hotly debated topic in uh, elections uh here is a uh the history and prophecy of the middle east we've been talking about that uh it's a free booklet it's at the trumpet.com and want to cover one section of it today about uh the king of the north in particular and so basically this this uh, booklet is covering Daniel 10:10 10, 10 through Daniel 12 and verse 4 which is the longest single vision in the Bible 
And uh, so it's fascinating uh, because historically you can prove that a lot of it's happened already, and then there's there's other parts that uh, are yet to happen. And uh, so this uh, part of the booklet talks about uh, a gentleman by the name of, I shouldn't probably say a gentleman, an individual by the name of Antiochus <laughs> Epiphanes. If you know much about him, you know he was a ruthless dictator, and he obtained rule through deceitful lies and flatteries. He was not an honest nor a kind individual. Daniel 11 and verse 21 says that he would come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So he would uh, come in in a way that's a little unusual. George Rawlinson gives a historical account of this event in his authoritative manual of ancient history and says that Antiochus, assisted by Eumenes, drives out uh, uh, Heliodorus and obtains the throne in B.C. 176. He astonishes his subjects by an affection of Roman manners, uh, sorry, affectation of Roman manners. Antiochus Epiphanes gained control by pretending to be someone that he really wasn't. So he's kind of a, he was kind of a con man anciently, and there's different types of him that come out later, the duality principle of the Bible. And uh, But that's one particular thing about an Antiochus or an Antiochus type. They're good at pretending to be something they're not. Yeah, and this ancient type was really good at coming across as suave or uh, easily approachable, easily relatable. Uh, he was a natural leader, uh, but the prophecies also show, and, and the history shows, just the uncontrollable rage in his heart and just how he would take out his anger if he lost a battle for example he would take out his anger on people totally unrelated to uh, how he lost and he would just kill he would raise up idols in the temple uh, all kinds of pagan sacrifices that he instituted Uh, he was one of the most destructive leaders ever and that's uh it's, it's just interesting when you look at human nature i mean People uh, sometimes aren't what they seem. <laughs> and, and sometimes that's a, well, oftentimes it's a very bad thing. Uh, one of the things about Antiochus, anciently, this original Antiochus, is that he really hated the Jews. If you look at uh, the history of the world, that's one thing that um, a lot of leaders have had in common. The Jews have a lot, they've been hated by a lot of people. And uh, and you see that even today. There is there is this uh, attitude of hatred towards the Jews. You just look at President Trump moving the uh, or saying he's going to move the uh, embassy there to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And, uh, boy, you see uh, the rage and the emotions get stirred. People do not like the Jews. Yeah, and the Muslims have promised to make every Friday a day of rage until he backs off of that uh, pr- pronunciation of Jerusalem being the capital. It's it's just such out-of-control emotion, and you can't really explain that on a physical level, why throughout history the Jews have been the target of the most uh, evil actions and the most hateful misdeeds in in all of history. Um, it's hard to explain why Hitler, for example, would have hated the Jews the way he did, uh, especially when the Jews actually helped his own country's economy so much, yet he received inspiration from an evil spirit power that caused him to, to create so much pain and bloodshed and suffering. Yeah, he did, and and uh, if you read some history of that time period, particularly if you read, say, an individual history of, say, a Jewish family or something, th- there were plenty of families that had lived in the German Germany for years, generations, and they considered themselves to be more German than anything else, but yet once Hitler came along and got people really stirred up, and it took time, it didn't happen overnight, but as he got it going, 
uh, suddenly they they all their friends they had known for years hated them. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can see how the minds of people change. And and Antiochus was that type of an individual too, where he had this this great hatred towards the Jews, and he wanted to obliterate them, and did in a very similar way to what Hitler did. Uh, uh, Werner Keller writes in The Bible is History that Israel had been spared none of the horror and ignominy which could befall a nation, but never before, neither under the Assyrians nor under the Babylonians, had it received such a blow as the edict issued by Antiochus Epiphanes by which he hoped to crush and destroy the faith of Israel. So he didn't want to just destroy them physically. He wanted to destroy their faith, their hope, uh, you know, their religion, <laughs> their humanity, and make them like like animals, I guess, or and destroy them. And that's the same same thinking Hitler had. Yeah, and that is a quite legendary quote. I've heard that one. We've all heard that one many times. It, it does show just the desire for total destruction. It's not just a matter of winning a military victory or even wiping out a few towns. It's it's about exterminating their entire race and making ev- everyone who ever was associated with them lose their hope as well. And that's exactly what Hitler did, uh, putting them in those concentration camps and killing six million of them. Uh, and again, it's just a it's just a hatred and a murderous spirit that you can't explain on a physical level. The Jews have never done anything worthy of that kind of disdain and hatred. Uh, if, for example, even even today with the peace process, um, the Israelis are seen by the world as the bad guys. Another similar situation might be the blood feud between North and South Korea. Yet we correctly identify North Korea as the bad guys in that situation. The Palestinians are the bad guys in the Middle East. They they weren't there first. Archaeology proves that. Uh, they are anciently their brothers, so why is there that kind of hatred there? Who's carrying out the terrorist attacks? I mean, it's pretty clear, and if you applied the same uh, criteria of the Middle East conflict to any other two nations in the entire world, uh, people would understand who is right and who is wrong. It's only with the Jews that... People just are blinded to the fact that uh, the Jews haven't done anything wrong in this situation, and yet they still get persecuted uh, far more than they ever should. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know that um, those that are really persecuting them even really know why. Uh, uh, for example, there was a, a story on the news when the when the clashes, uh, I guess, first broke out, and they haven't been that severe, but the Palestinians were throwing rocks, of course, at the uh, Jews. And the reporter was over there on the Palestinian side, American reporter, and asked a 17-year-old Palestinian girl, uh, well, so he said, well, what are you doing out here? And he, she said, well, I'm, she spoke English. She said, I'm throwing rocks, you know, over at them, over at the Jews. And he said, well, uh, what do you think this will accomplish? And she said, oh, nothing. And he he's like, well, why are you doing it? Like, he, he was, the reporter was almost a little incredulous, like, well, then why are you doing it? She said, well, just to support you know, my family and stuff. Like, she didn't really know why she was out there. She knew it was the popular thing to do, but she didn't know why. And I think that's the case with a lot of them that hate the Jews. Uh, I don't think they really know why, but of course they're being stirred up to have that feeling. She certainly knew that she was raised with children's cartoons and, and school textbooks that taught her that the Jews are the enemy that need to be wiped out. Uh, that's That's certainly what she grew up with, but... That's very true. They don't have a rational reason for why they hate the Jews so much. Uh, if you put the supposed offenses of the Palestinians and the Jews side by side, 
The Palestinians uh, use their women and children as shields whenever they attack Israelis. So then they duck behind the women and children. And then the entire world then condemns the Jews for issuing a retaliatory strike. Uh, the Jews even send out a warning, like you've talked about before. They send out a warning before they strike. <laughs> I don't think the Palestinians do anything of, of the sort. Uh, I guess what people say is that the Jews have these illegal set settlements, that they're maybe not even a legitimate state, so they don't deserve to call Jerusalem their capital. Uh, those things do not stand up to the repeated terrorist attacks and even the martyrdom of their own families uh, for the Palestinian cause. Yeah, that same spirit of hatred there is uh, is the same same spirit that Antiochus Epiphanes had and that uh, Hitler had even. Um, and uh, this uh, booklet here, History and Prophecy of the Middle East, goes through and talks about some more of these battles that Antiochus had. He had uh, three different battles there. But it says, but there is also important history recorded in Daniel eleven thirty six, as uh, was noted earlier in the booklet. When Antiochus went down to Egypt for the third time, his forces were resisted by Roman ships. Antiochus' Syrian kingdom was on its last leg, and by 65 B.C. it was swallowed up by the Roman Empire. The region became a Roman provenance. And it says, now here is the key point. So this is something really important to uh, note is that because the Roman emperor now controlled Judea, references to the king of the north from this point forward in Daniel 11 refer to the Roman Empire, not Antiochus. So when you go through this long vision and prophecy there in Daniel 11, there's a switch as to who the uh, king of the north is. It becomes the Roman Empire, not Antiochus. Verse 36 is an apt description of the Roman emperors who have historically done according to their own will, even exalting themselves above God. And you can read that there in, in Daniel 11. And verses 37 and 38 continue to describe this new line of Roman rulers in the region called the King of the North. Historically, Roman emperors have set themselves up to rule in God's stead or instead of him <laughs> in his place might be somebody on the earth that does that today. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> seems like somebody says that. Verse 39 says, Thus shall he do in the most strongholds uh, with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. These rulers of the king of the north do practice a religion, but as verse 39 says, it's the religion of a strange God. So here, there's a big change here in this prophecy and what happened historically. Antiochus Epiphanes was for a time there that king of the north, but when he loses to the uh, the Roman Empire, and uh, then they become the king of the north. And of course, Antiochus, after he lost, he blamed the Jews and <laughs> wanted to <laughs> obliterate them again. But uh, that's an important historical note and a prophetic note as well that the king of the north then is uh, this uh, Roman Empire. And the Romans really did pick up the mantle of Antiochus, and they continued a lot of the similar goals that Antiochus had. They were definitely a war-making empire. They always tried to conquer the entire rest of the world. Uh, they had a pagan religion that empowered them, especially as it became uh, a, the Holy Roman Empire, a church-state combine. Um, and it has caused more destruction than any empire or any sort of institution in, in all of history. Uh, even even looking again at, at what Hitler did, that was secretly backed by a false church. Yeah, lots of uh, lots of uh, occurrences of this type of of uh, hatred towards the Jews throughout history, from Antiochus and down through this Roman Empire, and of course that factors into the history of World War II there. 
And, uh, you know, even when Hitler was clearly losing the war, he turned his rage on the Jews even more. And they were still trying to kill as many as they could, even as they knew they were losing the war. And you'd think, well, that doesn't even make sense. Like, you would, you'd focus on winning this war, right? And forget the other thing. But, but he did not, because there's that spirit there that's uh, really causing that hatred for the Jews. But what's important, as is mentioned here, is the king of the north then becomes this Roman Empire. Europe, that region. Uh, how do they feel about the Jews today? How do they feel about the Middle East today in that area, and what are they going to do? Those are those are questions worth uh, considering. Yeah, and you can already get a sense of that by what a lot of the European leaders have been saying, how they reject what President Trump did it, with Jerusalem. They, uh, they have scorn for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. It's a very anti-Semitic over in Europe. It's been boiling under the surface for quite some time but that feeling toward the jews has never gone away just because germany lost world war ii the feeling is still there um they still find a way to blame the jews for a lot of the world's problems somehow and we're going to see as the bible prophesies uh, one more time they're going to hurt the jews very badly well you know after of course the uh the holocaust for some time anyway you know, people would be very careful on you know, what they said about the Jews and that type of thing. But really, here in the last few years, it seems like uh, the, that's not as big of a deal anymore. I mean, it wasn't but a few years ago that they were having open protests in some different European nations against the Jews and against Israel. And uh, it seems I haven't seen as many of those lately. They probably have other things they're concerned about right now. But, but uh, there's just more of that open hostility where... It was very taboo for a while because of the atrocities of World War II, but now it seems like uh, obviously the 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 like the Iranians and such they're belligerent against <laughs> the Jews, but you know uh, Europe is also in there too. And uh, if you look at the history of uh, uh, this King of the North, they have not been a friend to the Jewish people. Very true, and and also we can see even among the people, not just the leaders, how they are starting to be a little bit more proud of their past under Hitler. Uh, for example, Mein Kampf flying off the shelves and running out of stock immediately as soon as it finally became legal for the Germans to read that again. There was that book and movie uh, pairing that was actually a parody of how if Hitler came back today, he would be outraged that the people were not still on track the way that he had uh, led them back in back in World War II. And as part of that promotion, they had a fake Hitler walking around the streets, and a lot of the German people were actually embracing this guy and saying hello. They weren't outraged to see him. They they thought it was funny. Yeah, crazy. There is uh, this prophecy in Daniel does get into what you can expect to see with the king of the north coming up here uh, just in the near future. So we're going to talk about that as we go through this uh, booklet more. That's all the time we have for today, though on uh, Trumpet Radio Live, and uh, make sure you get this booklet, History and Prophecy of the Middle East. It's at thetrumpet.com. Key David Program, Trumpet Daily Radio Show, all coming up. For Grant Turgeon and myself, Dwight Falk, have a great rest of your Monday, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. You're listening to Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG.